Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Now, if you remember last week, we, we heard Jesus say, uh, I'm, the, I'm the intersection between heaven and earth, that the, the way you connect to heaven is through me. And then he said to Nathaniel, you think that's amazing, you're going to see even greater things. And I think that's, that's hinting at what we're about to start, is, is these stories about the seven signs that Jesus did uh, to show us both the glory, the beauty, and the meaning of who Jesus is and why he came. And so today we're going to look at the first sign, the, the turning of water into wine. And so let's, let's read God's word together. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, this word is true and trustworthy. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love. We ask that you would show us the glory of Jesus that we just read of so that we might rejoice with joy inexpressible, even though we live in a world that goes not well. So may your spirit pour out your love in our hearts and give us eyes and ears, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, these great things that the Lord has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever asked God for a sign to prove that he is real for you and real to you, right? If so, what was it? Maybe it was um, something along the lines of increase my bank account <laughs> or make that attractive somebody pay attention to me or, you know, we have all, all different kinds of prayers and fleeces and signs that we, we tend to look for to prove God's existence. One, one guy, Joshua Rasmussen, who's now a philosophy professor at Azusa Pacific, he says that when he was a teenager... Lying in his bed, questioning the existence of God, he was just staring at the fan on the ceiling, praying, God, if you are real, 
will you please make the ceiling fan that's not moving, make it move, right? Cause a supernatural wind to fly through his bedroom, right? It's very specific. Of course, now he says, thank God he didn't answer my prayer because that wouldn't have helped me understand the gospel. But for us, a sign tends to be, right, God, fix, fix my problems, right? Show me that you're real. Uh, prove you're real by serving me and answering my prayers. But in, in John, that's not how the signs work. The sign in the Gospel of John is, is here to show you the glory, the greatness, the beauty, the wonder of who Jesus is and why he came. And so as we look at the, the story of turning water into wine, right, it's, it's, a, it's a sign, right? It's pointing to spiritual reality. There's there's something that actual happened, actually happened, right? Jesus saved a wedding of two terrified teenagers who would have been humiliated. But it's also a sign of what Jesus came to do spiritually, right? So what's interesting, right, we're in this season now where candidates are announcing their intention to run for president in 2024 because we never get a break from these things, um, right? And they're, they're, they deliberately plan their first acts to say, here's what we're about, right? And then for the next two years, the media will try and pick out all the different details and say, what is the symbolic meaning of where they declare and, and who they're with and who's on stage with them and analyze every word? And so it's interesting. What, is, what, is then, what then does that say about Jesus as he kickstarts his public ministry by keeping a party going. <laughs> what does that tell us about the gospel? And so we're going to look at that question this morning. And the, the first point that this teaches us is Jesus is telling us that, you, that your joy is going to run out. It will not last. All right, so in our day, some people know better than I, right, that weddings are a big deal. In 2022, according to Google, people spend on average $30,000 to get married and throw an epic party. Right? $30,000. So we say that's a big deal, right? And in an ancient Israel, weddings were a big deal, but they didn't show that off by money. They would show it off by throwing a several-day feast, a big party, right? They, they wouldn't have a honeymoon, they would move into their house. They would be escorted after the wedding to their house. And for a whole week, or at least several days, um, this new bride and groom would be the hosts of this massive feast. Um, William Barclay, the commentator, tells us that weddings would take place late in the day. And as they get escorted back to their house, the, the, the groom and bride would be crowned king and queen and treated like royalty. Right? Their word during the wedding feast was law. And then everyone would party. Right? So you can add that to your Pinterest if you're planning your wedding. Right? Be treated like a princess. <laughs> um, but you can imagine what that would be like if you're in a land of hardship where the, the life expectation is much lower, uh, that you're not going to live very long, and it's poverty and hardship to have a week of celebration where you're eating and you're celebrating and there's good wine and there's good food. And everyone is happy and dancing, right? This is a massive deal, 
And then the problem is here, the wine runs out or the joy runs out. I mean, for us, it would be like the money running out, the music stopping, the DJ leaving, the bar closing, and the catering. Say, sorry, there's no more food. And so for these two teenagers, these young people that are getting married, um, in a shame-honor culture where hospitality is a sacred ritual, I mean, not only would you be ashamed just by being known as, hey, that was just a terrible wedding, and everyone would think of that every time they saw you, um, Running out of wine was a lawsuit-worthy event. <laughs> like in the ancient world, if you didn't have wine at the wedding, right, crazy Uncle Joe is going to bring, bring a lawsuit, pursue legal consequences. So here's, this is the, the context that Jesus is stepping into, that these poor kids, these young newlyweds, they need rescued. Uh, they need saved from what... They, they do not have the resources to fix what is about to go wrong. And so, on the one hand, this is a miracle that's it's incredibly personal. If you are the bridegroom, if you are the bride and groom, right, this is Jesus serving one small family in a poor village in ancient Israel. He's going to turn their shame into praise. Right? But at the same time, because this is a sign, that's what John says, right? This is a sign where you can see the glory of Jesus and understand why he came and what he came to do, right? Now, Jesus chooses specifically to, to save them by using these six stone water jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification, right? And so there was a common practice, and, and this was part of the Old Testament belief, was that sin... <coughs> made you unclean, it made you dirty, and so you would have to wash your hands a lot. And some rabbis would say you would need to wash your hands in between every course of, of the meal, right? This is a lot of washings. That's why there's a lot of water. And, you know, in, in the Old Testament, right, it was a symbol to say humans are unclean, and they need to have their guilt and shame washed away. You need purified to come into the, for God to come into your presence, we are unclean, he is holy, we need cleansed, right? So to, to relieve a, a, a burdened conscience, you would have to wash again and again and again. It's probably not all too dissimilar than um, someone terrified that they're not really saved, right? trying to Come back to the cross again and again. Wash me, Lord. Wash me. I don't know if, my, if I've done enough. Am I good enough? Right? I mean, do you know what that's like? I mean, we, we understand a little bit of what this means, to, that we're unclean and we have to wash things away. Right? If you've ever felt gross after doing something or have something being done to you, right? we go shower, we go wash our hands. Probably one of the more famous examples would be um, Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. Right? You know, participates in a conspiracy to commit murder, and she's trying to scrub away the guilt off her hands because she just helped her husband kill a man. And her husband, Macbeth, says, well, now that he's done this and he feels completely different, the, the whole ocean cannot wash out the guilt of what I've done. Just let that image sink in. Uh, Lady Macbeth famously has a spot on her hands, and she's scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing with frustration, losing her mind, and she finally just explodes. Out, damn spot. What can I, 
Who knew he had so much blood in him? I can't, I can't wipe away the shame of what I've done. And she eventually collapses and sobs, saying, all the perfume of Arabia, to all of the sweet-smelling things, cannot hide the stink of what I've done. So when Jesus chooses these symbolic jars of water used for purification, here's what he's announcing to the world. I've come to wash out what you, you've been trying and failing. Right? I've come to do what water by itself cannot do, which is remove the stink and the shame of what you've done in the pursuit of joy. I've, I've come to purify what water doesn't purify. I'm going to improve it. I'm going to change it, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Right? I mean, how do, how do we rack up guilt and shame? Why do we need purified? Uh, well, so often it's done in the pursuit of joy. I want to be happy. Right? And part of what this sign is showing us is that the wine for us will always run out. The joy will always fade. The buzz will, will end. And in our minds, we, just, we hear wine and say, okay, that's, that's a fun way to do a party. Um, right? Unless you're a teetotaler, then you have grape, ju- grape juice. Right? But in the ancient world, wine and joy were synonyms. Right? To the point where the rabbis would say, if we have no wine, there's no joy. And you get a glimpse of it. That's why we read a bunch of the prophets, right? Joel, be glad. And why would you be glad? There's an abundance of wine. Your vineyards are flowing. I mean, Isaiah said, this is, when God makes a feast, it's, it's a well-prepared, well-refined wine that he's going to serve and help us celebrate uh, his finished work. Uh, when you get, if you read in Jeremiah 31, it says God's people are going to be radiant over the goodness of God, over the wine, because there's going to be an abundance of wine and then you'll languish no more. In other words, if there's no wine at the feast, there's no party, and if you have no wine, there's no joy. So where have you been pursuing joy, and where have you found out that, hey, it, the joy always fades? Right? The party will end, college will stop, you have to go be an adult now and pay your bills. Are <laughs> um, you experience some success and you find that it doesn't change you the way you think it's going to change you, or you get married and figured out he isn't Prince Charming and, and she isn't a, a perfect princess whose love is going to redeem your existence. Right? You, you, you aim for all of your joy in your children and your children turn out to, to rebel. And even those who abuse alcohol, right? often it starts with, I want to have a good time. But it can turn into, right, I'm trying to pursue joy because my life stinks. Life is hard. And we try and drown and wash away our our shame and sorrows. But the point is, the joy, the wine, will always run out. And in that pursuit, we make mistakes, we break commandments, we cross boundaries, we said we would never cross. All aiming at happiness, and we find out that it's, it's like a vapor. All right. That's, that's the testimony of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. 
I decided to try and live for pleasure. I kept my heart from no pleasure that exists in this world. Whatever my eyes desired, I took. I'm going to enjoy life to the fullest. He had wealth, he had women, he had beauty, building projects, success, you name it. And at the end of all that, he says, I had all this pleasure. And I found out it was like a vapor, meaningless. It didn't satisfy. The joy ran out. It's life under the sun. So this is the context for Jesus starting to turn whose plan is to turn water into wine, he's, he's saying in this miracle, I've come to give you a joy that will abound, that will not run out. A joy that will turn your shame into praise. Right. It's good news. So first point, the joy, your joy is going to run out. The second point is, is look at what kills the joy for Jesus. Right? So you could look at verse, verse 3, Jesus is, the wine runs out and Jesus' mother comes to him and does what mothers do and pours a little guilt in Jesus' glass <laughs> right? and says, Jesus, they ran out, of, ran out of wine, you fix this. Right? And Jesus responds, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I know for some of you, Woman, Jesus calling his mom woman just grates in your ears, right? How could perfect Jesus be so rude to his mother, right? So this is one of those things, right? Kids, don't do what Jesus does. Don't call your mom woman. Your joy will run out, <laughs> right? No, this, this is one of those places where the Greek word for woman just doesn't translate well in English um, because... John, when Jesus is dying on the cross, what does he say to his mom? Woman, behold your son. Right? It's, a, it's a tender moment where he's passing off um, care of his mother. He's making sure his mom is cared for in his last breaths. Right? And you can find it in, in history. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus calls his beloved wife woman. He uses that same term. Augustine calls Cleopatra, right, trying to impress her calls her woman, apparently. Um, not Augustine, Augustus, Caesar. Caesar Augustus, thank you. i got to get my history right. <laughs> the idea, right, this is a, more of a tender term than a, an abrasive term. But what's more odd than that is, is what Jesus says. What is that to me? My hour has not yet come. Because in John, Jesus' hour always refers to the time of his death, the crucifixion. So the conversation is, Jesus, they run out of wine, and Jesus says, well, I'm not ready to die yet. Right? It's really odd. So why is Jesus so bleak at a wedding party surrounded by joy? Right? Why would you think about your death when you're at a party? And I think we're getting a glimpse of what moves and motivates Jesus, right? This is the proclamation of why he came. And it starts with his hour. He's already thinking about it. He's already thinking about his death. You know, what, what do single people do at a wedding? Right? Usually. Often they're thinking about their own wedding, their, their future spouse, their future joy, and 
who will that person be and what will be they like what will they be like and how will I get there and will my food taste better or worse than this or what, you know whatever those thoughts are what will my wedding be like and in the scriptures one of the metaphors for relating to God relating to the Lord and it's a title given to Jesus is that he is our bridegroom he's our bridegroom and so God doesn't just want to rule over you as king he wants to come to his people and marry us with a wedding day type love. So we get glimpses in the Old Testament that are amazing, right? Isaiah 4 is an obscure place, but a beautiful place where there's a day coming when all guilt and shame will be washed away from God's people. And it says, your filth will be removed through judgment. And on that day, the Lord will set up a canopy, a tent over the glory, with having the glory of God dwelling with his people. But that word canopy is not just any tent, it's the word to describe a bridal chamber. It's the kind of tent used the first night of the honeymoon. In Hebrew, it's a chuppah, you say it in the back, right? And so... Isaiah is looking forward to the day when God is going to dwell with his people with this passionate, married love, celebrating that guilt and shame is removed through an act of judgment. Isaiah 62, right, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here's God describing wedding day love. Then you add the bigger story that we know in Revelation that all of history is rushing towards a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a party that's celebrating the union of Jesus with his purified ones, right? God, Jesus wants us to think of him as a bridegroom. One more place. Uh, I think this will help. We read it this morning. It was uh, that Eva read it for us from Joel 3.18. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and a fountain will come from the house of the Lord, and it will water the valley of Shittim. It's one of those words where you have no idea how to say, but, right? And it's this picture of abundance of wine, an abundance of joy. It's flowing from God's presence. It's flowing from his house. And this place called Shittim will be transformed. We go, well, what, why do I care about Shittim? But to Israel, in their history, Shittim was a place of humiliation and shame. It's a story in Numbers 25, where Israel cheated on the Lord by marrying uh, Moabite women. And they started worshiping their god, Baal. And they started breaking commandments. They started with the first one. (laughs) And then they, they were breaking God's laws all over the place. And judgment comes down in the form of a plague. In other words, Israel was pursuing joy apart from Yahweh, apart from their bridegroom. They were cheating on the one who loves them and who loved them first. And so Joel is looking forward to the day when lots of wine and water come together to literally wash a place of shame away. Right? It's joy is in your future and your past is going to be cleansed. 
And the, the valley of Shittim is going to flourish under God's love. So if you have all these images floating around in your head, which is hard to do when you're reading John, um, you can get an idea what Jesus is thinking. Mary's just saying, fix the wedding. This wedding is going to be a disaster. And Jesus says, well, it's not my time to die. And here you have single Jesus, so to speak, thinking for me to be joyful, for me to enjoy my bride, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to remove the shame of my bride. And for me to marry my bride, I have to cleanse her. I have to wash away her humiliation. And for me to do that, that's going to cost me my life. My hour has not yet come. My hour is coming. And so Jesus is surrounding, surrounded by joy, sipping the coming sorrow. And then he makes an obscene amount of wine. All right? It's 180 gallons, roughly. And it's actually wine. It's not grape juice. Right? It may not be as strong as our wine, but it's alcohol. And it's the best wine. Right? The master of the feast says, everyone else waits till everyone's buzzed and doesn't care about the quality of the wine. You have saved the best wine for last. And so what's killing Jesus' joy is literally his, his sacrificial death to cleanse his bride. That's what he's thinking about. So lastly here, let's look at Jesus, Lord of the Feast, because how does he do this? Do you know when the next time wine is mentioned in the Gospel of John? Apart from this wedding. It's only at the cross. Moment where Jesus cries out, I thirst, which is a, an Old Testament way of saying I'm longing for my Father. And physically, he's thirsty in his humanity, but spiritually, he's, he's been cut off. And so the soldiers, in a moment of compassion, give him some cheap vinegar wine right before he cries out, It is finished, and he dies. And so, what's happening? Jesus is drinking the, the the cheap wine, right? the cup of sorrow, the loss of his father, so that we, his bride, can sip the cup of joy, to, to drink of the wine that, that covers our shame. Right? I mean, the, the problem with those jars of purification, right, you would wash again and again and again and say, get out, Spot, I, I just want to be rid of this mortifying shame. I can't fix me. Right? The, the fact that the, there's so much water and it's, they still continue to wash is highlighting our inability. And so when Jesus changes that water to the good wine, to the best wine, to give us this festival joy of God's wedding day love for us, right? he's saying, I'm, I just did what you couldn't do. I'm forgiving your sin. I'm removing it from you as far as the east is from the west. I am going to dress you in a wedding, you know, a bridal gown, so to speak. I'm going to dress you in white. Right? That's the gift of the gospel. How do we know that's for us? Well, on the one hand, look at what Jesus does for this one couple through the miracle. He turns their shame into praise, right? They're about to be held up on charges. You are the killer of all joy, right? You didn't have enough wine. But what happens is, when Jesus changes the water into wine, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom, and the bridegroom gets all the praise of Jesus' work. Right? 
Usually you bring out the cheap, cheap stuff later, but you saved the best wine till now. They're getting praise. They're going to, from till, for the rest of time, they're going to be remembered. Yeah, this was the wedding that had the good stuff. But that pattern in the gospel with God's wedding day type love, that's available to everyone who puts their faith in Christ, that your shame will be turned to praise. Right? You know how this works? Right? When, when I've done a handful of weddings, and the, the fun part of doing a wedding as, as the pastor, as the, the officiant of the ceremony, right? You get, I get the front row seat to both watch the groom, trying to not pass out because he's nervous, right? And you get a front row seat to, to the bride coming down the aisle. And it's really fun just to watch their faces, right? To, to see his face when he sees her for the first time, uh, all dressed in white and beautiful and without flaw. And to see her eyes um, meet his and moved by, by their just mutual love for each other and usually someone sobbing in the background, just, move, just overcome with emotion because it's just a beautiful moment. And when the bride is dressed in white, right, it doesn't matter who you are, right, the, the bride always radiates. She is loved. And the portrait of white, right, is, is pointing to her purity of she's without flaw. And so if you're a Christian, you're going to receive this gift of Jesus, who's part of the bride of Christ. There's a great exchange that happens. This is why Jesus had to drink that cheap wine. Right? When, when Jesus chose to marry the church, he got what we have, and we get what he has. Just the way a wedding works. Right? We get the resources of the bridegroom. We get his righteousness. We are decked in white, flawless, radiant. We have our bridegroom, the king, who's able to say to us, like Song of Solomon says, you are, you are altogether beautiful, my love. You have no flaw. It's amazing grace. We're, it's what Revelation 19 points at, you know, that the bride of Christ who's seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb, they're dressed in white, they're radiant. Our shame is covered because we've been cleansed by the blood of the new covenant, which we taste every time we drink the wine at communion. Well, grape juice, fruit of the vine. Right? Jesus gets our stain, our judgment. We get his grace, his righteousness, and we have our shame covered. It's turned to praise. Right? Literally, in Zephaniah 3, that portrait that we heard in our assurance of pardon, it's, it's God the King looking at his people who've had their shame removed. And it's either he is moved to quietness by his love for them, or he is moving us to quietness and rest by his love. Both seem to be there because he, he then just explodes into singing and just celebrating that he, he sings a song about his bride. He does what Adam did to Eve. He, he writes poetry, <laughs> so to speak. Right. He gets our sin. We, he takes our judgment so that we get this wedding day delight. Right? And that's what happens. We have that brutal story in, in the valley or in the place of Shittim in Numbers 25 uh, when, you know, there's, if the bad behavior is being confronted and there's a plague that's broken out in the camp of Israel, God's judgment is, is calling the sin of Israel to account. 
And there's one person, one Israelite, who has the audacity to bring his Moabite wife and flaunt his immorality and his adultery before everyone in the camp. Right? And so Phineas makes his name as a priest. He takes a spear. It's a, told you, this is a brutal story. And he pierces them so that God's justice would be satisfied. And it says that the plague is stopped through Phineas's zeal, through his passion. We have something better. We have our bridegroom, our high priest forever, who loves us and says, let me be the sacrifice. Father, run the spear into my side so that my people might be cleansed by that fountain of blood and water that flows from his side. That's grace. And so, how do you apply this? You know, where is your greatest shame? Uh, where is your valley of shatim, so to speak? You know, where, where are the moments that still haunt you today? Right? The message of the gospel is Jesus turns that shame into praise. Um, you can have the wedding day delight of our Savior who says, you are mine. You, you have my righteousness. I paid for you. And now instead of shame, instead of sipping on our sorrow, we get to sip the, the wine of God's love. You know? Second, this, this miracle helps us deal with grief. Ed Clowney has a great way of putting this. Uh, the, the Westminster professor and Bible teacher, he says, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow thinking about his hour, right? And he did that so that today we can sit amidst the world's sorrow and sip the coming joy. All those places the prophets look forward to, the wiping away of tears, the all things sad coming untrue. So do you know how to do that? To be surrounded by sorrow and say there is a great feast coming where death is swallowed up and tears will be wiped away and we will raise a glass to the best wine, to the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, who loved us while we were unfaithful. Right? Do you know how to do that? I think this miracle also can teach us to trust like Mary, because if you are Jesus' mother, right, and he, she says, all right, Jesus, you're going to fix the problem, and she does the right thing, bring your problem to Jesus, and she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, to everyone involved in this, making the water turn into wine, do you think the instructions made any sense if you're one of the servants? Right? I mean, Mary got a weird answer about this mysterious hour. The servants are saying, well, just fill these things with water and then go take a cup of water to the master of the feast. And so in other words, in light of who Jesus is, in light of Jesus being your bridegroom and the festival joy that he gives, even if you don't know why he says what he says or why he commands or if he tells you, no, you think that will bring you joy, but I'm telling you to bring you sorrow, right? Do whatever he says. You can trust him. You're called to trust the one who chose grief so that you may receive joy. And then lastly... 
inform your faith. <laughs> right? Inform your faith of, of what you have in the gospel. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the, the famous Baptist pastor, right, in his lectures to the students talked about this passage. And he said, you know, there are some pastors in particular who just, they're never invited to a party. They, don't, they do not look comfortable like they, would, like, like they would belong at a wedding feast. Jesus was invited to this party. Right? And he says these guys are so gloomy, they dress like they're no fun, their face is sour and serious, and there's just no joy about them. And he says someone who has no geniality, no joy about them, they're just better equipped to be undertakers. So go and bury the dead because you have greater impact on the dead than the living. <laughs> it's very blunt. Right? But there's a lot of wisdom there. Right? If we're going to bear witness to this Christ who shows his glory, who says, I've come to give you a taste of joy even in the midst of sorrow, right? It's not to squash your emotions. It's just to say, remind your heart, inform your face that one of the, the best tools that you can, one of the best evangelism tools you have is the joy that you've been given in the gospel, right? Can people tell, can they say about you, you saw the glory of Jesus in this miracle and that you believe in him, right? That they, that can they tell that your shame has been turned to praise, that you, that you believe that your sorrow will be replaced by unending gladness? I mean, this isn't an empty happiness where you can't take anything serious. It's a, just a, a buoyancy, a toughness, knowing that God will right what is wrong. Right? And so that's Spurgeon's point. Just as you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, you'll win more souls with joy than a sour demeanor that takes oneself too seriously. So, I'll leave you with this. Jesus drank the cup of vinegar so that we could drink the, the good wine, this cup of fellowship and joy. Let's rejoice in him. Let's pray. Our mighty and most merciful God, um, as we are seeing, you sent your son to seek and save the lost to cover our shame. And I ask, Lord, that you would open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might see his glory, be moved by his beauty, that we might follow him by faith so that we can feast with him forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work pouring out your love in our hearts uh, that we might radiate with the joy that only Jesus gives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing, uh, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. <laughs>